Father, we ask now that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. And we ask that in attending to your voice, you might change and mold and shape us into being your faithful people in this world. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So in 1930, the famous economist John Maynard Keynes uh, published an essay where he argued that by the 21st century, we would reach a point because of technological developments and whatnot, where we would reach a point where there would be no more need for a five-day work week, and instead there would be a two-day work week and five days of rest. And so he said there would be a new problem that we would have to wrestle with, namely the problem of what to do with all of that free time, how we would spend our leisure time, how much time we would spend with our family. And wouldn't that just be awesome? Now, sadly, that day never materialized, did it? At least I don't work a two-day work week. Some of you think, don't pastors do, don't you just work on Sunday? No, I don't. Um, it's a, there's a lot going on, you know? But it was interesting because a few years back in The Economist magazine, I mean, I'm sorry, in The Atlantic, there was an essay published uh, with the title, Workism. And in this essay, the author argues why it is the case that we haven't moved to this new time where there's so much leisure in spite of all the technology. And in short, he basically argues in this essay that the reason for it is idolatry that Americans have made an idol of work. And he says, of course, for, for, for many working class people, work is a necessity and it's viewed as simply labor. But he said, for a whole lot of college elites, work has become more than an economic necessity. It has become necessary to make meaning of their lives and their existence. And uh, Derek Thompson, the author, writes this. He said, the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new gods. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, others worship their children, but everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. He says, workism is among the most popular gods in American culture, among the most popular idols. Now, I know for a lot of you in this room, maybe that rings true. Maybe for you, you, you've graduated, you've pursued this vocation, and you find your ultimate meaning, you, you base your whole identity in your career. But I think for a lot of others among us, that's just not the case, you know? But of course, a workism is not the only ism that can become an idol in your life. Now, let's just define what we mean by idol. An idol is when you take something that is not God and give it a place and role in your life that belongs properly only to God. And when you do that, you create an idol. And so you take something like, for example, work, and you give it a place or a role in your life, namely to build an identity, uh, to be your savior, uh, to give your life meaning and value and ultimate worth. He says, when you take uh, something that is not God and you give it a role and and place that only belongs to God, you've created an idol. Uh, The pastor and author Tim Keller describes an idol like this. He says, when you take a finite, limited, good thing and you make it into an ultimate thing, you have created an idol. 
Now, of course, uh, the idols that we can make are many and sundry. We can give a lot of things in our life that maybe are good things. We can imbue as ultimate things, as uh, things that, that end up taking the place that only God should play in our lives. And so for some of you, it might be work. For others, it might be family and children. Uh, for still others, it might be your ability to control other people or be perfect or to achieve financial security and Am I tapping at the, am I nicking the corners of any idols in the house? And uh, we all come to the table struggling uh, with this issue of idolatry, struggling with taking this finite, limited good things and to make it into an ultimate thing. We all create our own isms. I remember back when I was in high school, I had a friend who was, uh, his name was Jason, and Jason had a big ego and, and he thought he knew everything and he was good at a lot of stuff and he had a very high opinion of himself and why shouldn't he? I mean, after all, he had already achieved the ripe old age of 18 years old, right? And um, and uh, I remember him saying that he was creating a new religion that he was going to call Jasonism. And, um, and, 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 and your ism could be your own self at the core. Basically, putting yourself in a place and role that only God can play. Now, this morning, we're going to be talking together about this issue of idolatry because we're turning to a passage in the story of Elijah where he challenges the problem of idolatry. Now, of course, the story that we're going to be looking at today, the story of uh, Elijah issuing a challenge to the prophets of Baal and then ultimately calling down fire from heaven, this is among the favorite stories for children, uh, you know, in Sunday school. In fact, I ran into a guy this morning and he said, Josh, that was my favorite story in Sunday school. And I wonder if anybody else in the house, you know, kind of, this was your favorite. I mean, it's like, and if you're old enough, maybe it was on the flannel graph Come on, flannel graph. And, um, but, you know, although kids love this story, the topic is anything but childish. It deals with a very adult and very relevant topic. And this text is not simply meant to educate us about the issue of idolatry. Its intention is to expose us and to challenge us and to get under your skin and to get you asking new questions. Questions like, have I put anything in my, in my life in the role that only God should properly play? Have I taken some finite things and have I made them into ultimate things and governing things and therefore enslaving things? And this story forces us to wrestle with that issue. And so we're going to bring this issue of the idols of our own hearts into conversation with the story that we're going to look at today. And it begins like this. So when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, so you remember last week, Elijah uh, went out to find Ahab. And then he finds instead Ahab's right-hand man, Obadiah, and he says, go get Ahab, bring him to me. And so he does. He goes and gets Ahab. And when Ahab saw Elijah, he says, is it you, you troubler of Israel? You know, he says, you're ticking me off. You are bothering me. You are irritating me, Elijah. Is it you? And Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. You and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now, therefore, sin and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And you got to love the chutzpah. 
you know, the audacity of Elijah. He confronts the king, and the king who is supposed to be commanding and chasing after Elijah is now commanded by Elijah. And Elijah says, now I want you to do something, king. I want you to go and get for me all of the prophets of Baal, all of the prophets of Asherah, 950 of them, and then go gather all of the children of Israel together, and we are going to have a little contest. We're going to have a little showdown between me and my God and uh, your prophets and their gods. And so Ahab did it. Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, now stop there. It's interesting that when Elijah is going to challenge the prophets, he also calls the whole people together. When he challenges the prophets of Baal, he calls all of the people together because this is a contest that God's people, you and I, are meant to witness. And it's a contest that we're meant to witness because idolatry, it turns out in this text, is not just a problem for the prophets of Baal or for uh, Ahab, it's a problem for God's people. His people have fallen into idolatry. And so now all of the crowds, you imagine tens of thousands of people gathering together. They are all getting ready and there's, there's electricity in the air. You know, there's a contest, a big showdown that's going to happen. You know, if you've ever been to like a, you know, an SC game or something, and there's like energy and electricity, you know, and the band's going, you know, and like, come on. And, and this, is, this is this moment, and Elijah stands, and listen to what he says. He looks at all the people, and he says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? He first asks them a penetrating question. He says, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? Some of you were brought by God to church this morning to, be, to face this question. How long will you go on limping between two opinions? Now, someone says, that's a little bit of a weird way to put it, you know, like you're limping from one opinion to the next. It's interesting, a little bit later in the text, uh, that same word limping uh, is translated in a way to describe the dancing of the prophets of Baal as they dance before uh, uh, Baal or Baal. And uh, so I'm imagining uh, what he's describing here is something of a limping dance, kind of of a sad, pathetic kind of dance, you know, kind of like a white person dance, you know, you're, <laughs> you know, and just, you're kind of like limping from one thing, you're feeling me, come on. And, um, and, and, and I think what he's describing is he says, there, you, you've got... Bales, you've got, your God, you've got your idols, and then there is the true and living God, and you keep hopping between them. You keep sadly and pathetically limping from one thing to the next. You go to church on Sunday and praise God, and then you hug your idols the rest of the week. And he says, how long are you going to do that? And then he issues this challenge. He says, if the Lord is God, then follow him. And if Baal is God, then follow him. And I love this because he challenges them, he challenges us to make a decision. He said, you cannot go forever simply limping between two opinions. You have to make a decision. 
You know, I can remember my brother, uh, when he was dating his now wife, Anita, he dated her for six, seven years. It was a very, very long time. And my brother Brent was well in that age when you might ask someone to marry you. And Anita ticked all of the boxes. She was a woman of character and godly and a hard worker and beautiful. And she ticked all these boxes. And I remember talking to Brent, Brent, you know, when, when, are, you gonna, when are you gonna ask Anita to marry you, you know? Come on, come on, let's do this thing, you know? And, uh, and the problem wasn't with Anita, it was with Brent. Brent was afraid of commitment. And some of you, you are afraid of commitment. And you know the Lord is God. Jesus has been raised from the dead. You, you believe that. But you have yet to embrace that fully and unreservedly and orient the totality of your life around Jesus and his identity and his way in this world. And so you're limping between one thing and the next. And Elijah here calls him and he calls them and he calls us all to make a decision. And I love it. Do you notice in this text, the decision, what is it based on? I like this because Elijah is not asking them uh, to make a decision based purely on their emotions. He is not trying to manipulate or coerce them or guilt them or scare them into making a decision. Uh, He doesn't uh, turn down the music and the lights you know, and get everything really slow and have a sloped auditorium and start getting, trying to coerce them to come down, to make a decision. No, what does he do? He argues on the basis of reason. You know, this is an if-then statement. If the Lord is God, if God has raised Jesus from the dead, then there is no place for idols. If God has raised Jesus from the dead, then follow him. It's a logical, it's a very rational and very reasonable call. But if Baal, then follow him. Well, he moves on from the the evocative question now to some of the instructions for the contest. Look at what he says. He says, let two bowls be given to us and let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. So he says, get it all prepared for a sacrifice. Slaughter the thing, get it all laid out there. And then he says, and I will prepare the other bowl. And he says, I'll even let you choose first. You you have first pick, you know? You can choose the first bowl. And then he says, and I'll take the other one and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And then, here's what we'll do. You and your 450 prophets of Baal will pray to your God And I'll pray to my God, and the God who answers by fire is the true and living God. He is God. And all the people said, that sounds great. You know, it is well spoken. Game on. Let's let's do it. And so then Elijah turns to the prophets of Baal, and he says, okay, let me explain to you the rules of the game. He says, uh, choose for yourselves one bowl, prepare it first, you are many, and, uh, you know, you, you way outnumber me, you know, and call upon the name of your God and put no fire on it. And it's interesting, you know, the prophets of Baal are there in uh, Mount Carmel, which, as I understand, is close to Baal territory. So he has given the prophets of Baal home court advantage, and he is way outnumbered. And so he challenges them, take your, your, your and you got all your people, and, uh, and, and they, they took the bowl that was given to them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, 
and no one answered. And they limped around the altar doing the white person dance, you know, back and forth, you know, uh, doing, getting their praise dance on, you know, um, that they had made. Now, why this, this is an odd, this is unusual in the Old Testament. We have this challenge to call down fire from heaven. Why is he asking the prophets of Baal to call down fire from heaven? Well, because Baal, here's a little statue of Baal, was known, as we've said time and again, as the storm god. And what is the storm god responsible for but rain as well as thunder and what else? Lightning. And what is lightning? I mean, if you can start, a, I mean, that, that's, that's fire, right? He's like, look, you are, you know, this is the God, he's got, he, this is his expertise. This is his specialization. You know, uh, send, fire, send that, that lightning bolt right down, blow that thing up, you know, get that thing going. And uh, it, it's interesting, I, I just want to pause for a moment, and I want to talk to you for a moment a little bit more about idolatry. Now, it's easy to think, you know, oh, how naive, how retrograde, you know, that these old, you know, ancient peoples, you know, so primitive and regressive, they would worship these gods. But, but listen, Baal was a very logical god for someone in the ancient world to worship because he was the storm god according to the legends, according to the myths, according to the culture of the day. And they lived in a semi-arid region, the land of Palestine. It doesn't have a bunch of natural, large sources of water, like rivers that run through. Instead, they depend upon rain in order to grow their crops, to sustain their economy, to feed their families. And so they are utterly dependent upon rain. And so it makes sense in some ways that they would bow to the same idols that everyone else in the culture was bound to. It, it, it seemed that sometimes when people prayed to this Baal, sometimes rain would come. And we seem to pray to our God and he's not sending rain. And so let's turn now away from Yahweh and let's now try worshiping Baal. And I, I just want to stand back and I, and I want us to, to, to think that this is not so naive and so uh, primitive as we might imagine because, of course, we turn to things all the time, earthly things, created things, finite things, that we transform into ultimate things and treat as if they are God. And let me just uh, give some examples of, of what this might be. So a few observations about idols. So an idol, it might be a bad thing, and so, for example, if you are turning to meth or coke in order to get through the week and you're constantly thinking about how you're going to get the next hit, you orient your whole life around that. And if you know somebody who is an addict, you know how tragic that is. And, and they truly are orient their life around some synthetic thing that ultimately is going to destroy them. And so an idol can be a bad thing. And maybe some of you, behind closed doors, you are struggling with an idol that is a bad thing. You know, you keep turning to the bottle to forget. You keep turning to another pill. And maybe nobody else knows because you're a nice church-going person, but there it is. So an idol might be uh, a bad thing. But the, the tricky thing about idols is an idol can be a good thing. 
An idol can be something that is worthy and noble and actually has a good and proper place in your life, but what you've done is you have taken it from its proper place and you've given it an improper and ultimate role in your life. And so let me just give one example from my own uh, uh, profession, namely uh, pastoring. Uh, You know, it's really easy for young preachers to be obsessed with how they look and sound and come off when they preach and to be overcome with, with, with um, uh, I talk sometimes to uh, Alicia, my wife, about having like a vulnerability hangover after preaching. Because you get up and you present something of yourself before people and you kind of agonize over what you said or how you said it when you messed up that thing or you wish you could have done it differently. And I know that that's a common experience. If you're in any kind of profession where you're putting yourself in front of people, you end up agonizing over that. And what you can do if you're not careful is you can make the thing that you're really serving in a moment where you're putting yourself on display your own ego and your image rather than God. And this moment is about God. It's about nourishing the people of God and bringing honor and glory to God. It doesn't matter if I look stupid or say something weird or, I mean, it matters and I wanna, because I want to glorify God when I do this, but ultimately this is for God, not for me. And so, so you can take a good thing in your life and you can transform it into something that is very, very destructive. Uh, you, 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 can just, you, can transform, you, you can take, for example, you can take financial security. Is financial security, is having a savings account a good thing? Yes, it is. But you can turn it into an ultimate thing. You can feel like if I don't have this, my life is going to fall apart. I need this. I need a big bank account. And so I can't share. I can't give. I can't open up my, 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 my life and share with others because what was a good thing ultimately became an ultimate thing. An idol might also be connected with past trauma. And the way this might work is something like this. You grew up in a home that was verbally and physically abusive. And that goes deep. It is carried in your body. And, it is in, and, and you just, you, you, what you feel like I need more than anything else the thing that, that I need for my life to be okay is a anger and argument-free home. And that's the thing that you cherish above all else. And, and so what do, what do you do? Well, well, because you want this thing, it, it's like more than anything else, it starts getting you controlling. You, maybe you're, you're hiding and you're not ruffling anyone's feathers and you're not talking about the elephant in the room or anything that needs to be talked about or if uh, a child or a spouse or a parent you know, goes off the handle like, and, and, and you don't know what to do with that. So nobody can, nobody can get emotionally dysregulated in this house. Nobody... We don't give permission for that because it doesn't make me feel okay because there is something that has become ultimate that I need in my life. And so what what your idol might be, it it might be something that's connected to a past trauma. Or maybe there was a lot of arguing in the home because of financial difficulties and you made a promise to yourself when you were little, I will never have financial difficulties, not in my home. I will always have ample supply. But now that has become so important to your well-being that you start orienting everything in your life around it and you start ignoring and compromising all of the ways in which Jesus is calling you to live generously and openly in this world. And, and, you know, the most tricky of all is, 
is an idol might be connected to your religion, your Christian religion. It might be your own, uh, the way in which you practice your Christianity. Maybe what you do is you get really into knowledge and doctrine and theology, and all of a sudden, instead of Jesus being the one that is at the center of your life, it is your correct and right doctrine or theology. Anne Lamott said this, she said, you can safely assume you've created God in your image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. (laughs) You know, when God votes for the same party as you do, when he's against the same political enemies or anything else as you do, something is wrong. And maybe you're using your religion not to serve God, you're using God to serve something that you really want, namely your sense of rightness, your political ideology, uh, your nationalism, or any other thing you can marshal God's help in doing. And so let me just say some diagnostic questions that might help you diagnose your own idols. Number one, what do you effortlessly spend money on? What is it is there's no problem at all spending, but you're just like, you're like you're, you, you will go into debt for this and you'll go even deeper into debt for this, right? What do you effortlessly spend money on? Uh, second, what do you feel like you cannot live without? You know, Tim Keller says that, uh, you know, when, 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 when you have a good thing, like a, a good healthy marriage, or um, maybe, maybe you know, your kids are doing really well, or, or maybe your parents, you know, they're doing great, and you feel really good about that because you need a good healthy, and those are all good things, you know, financial security, stability, these are, are good things, and he says, uh, if you've got a good job, and that thing gets threatened or taken away, and you lose your financial security, you lose the job, uh, the marriage starts to become shaken or whatever, if it's a good thing, you will be sad, you will be distraught, but if it's become an ultimate thing, if it is what you are looking for to save you, to give you real life, then when it gets threatened, you will not just be sad, you will want to throw yourself off a bridge. And then finally, what do you, what do you think about? What is, it, what is the thing that your mind goes to when you're not thinking about anything else? Your mind just effortlessly goes there. That may be your idol. So an idol is when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, but we must keep going on because the good thing that becomes an ultimate thing can often become an enslaving and a destructive thing. Look what happens next. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. (laughs) I, I like that. I don't know. I don't know why. At noon, Elijah mocked them saying, you know, they, they, they've been crying now for maybe four or five hours out to their gods. You know, they're doing their little dance, you know, their praise dance, you know, around the altar and crying out to Baal. And, uh, and nothing's happening. And so Elijah, he gets a little cheeky. And he says, cry aloud. He's a god, isn't he? Maybe, maybe he's musing, you know. Uh, maybe, maybe he's in a meeting right now. Maybe he's occupied. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on the toilet, literally, in the Hebrew. Or maybe he's on a long journey. Maybe he took, vaca- maybe he took a vacation. You know, God's need a vacation, right? Maybe he's gone on a vacation. And, or maybe he's just sleeping, and you need to wake him up. And how are you going to wake him up if you only cry out in such low? You need to cry louder. And look what happens next. And they cried aloud, and now it gets dark, and it gets a little bit 
It moves from the humor to something that's very dark. They cried aloud and they cut themselves, as was their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid any attention. So they cry out. They're cutting themselves. They're dancing. And and Elijah is mocking them. Listen, don't misunderstand what's going on here. Elijah is not simply trying to ridicule or bully these prophets. I mean, you'd have to be a fool to think that one versus some 950, you know, you're going to pick a fight with those people and get out okay. Elijah is not simply trying to ridicule or mock. Elijah is trying to wake up the people of God who are watching this whole contest unfold. And what is he trying to wake us up to? to this irony at the very heart of this story, to a paradox deeply embedded within idolatry. On the one hand, on the one hand, the idol is powerless. It has no real power. It has no ears to hear. It has no eyes to see. It has no arms with which to reach down and pick up his people. It has no thunderbolts with which to throw down upon that fire. The God is nothing. It has no real power. And yet, on the other hand, do you notice what immense power the idol gains in these people's lives? It wields tremendous power. It makes them dance. It makes them cry. It makes them cut themselves until the blood starts flowing out of them. It is controlling them. It is enslaving them. And Baal is now destroying them. And here is the paradox. Here's the irony of idolatry. When you give yourself over to something that is not God, when you give something in your life a, pl- a place, uh, the, the place that only God deserves, and that thing is not God, when you take a, a, a good thing and you make it into an ultimate thing, and all of us in some way, shape, or form is doing this lots of di- days of the week, right? He says the good thing becomes an ultimate thing and it can ultimately become an enslaving thing and a destructive thing. You know, before a graduating class of students at Kenyon College, which was an elite uh, liberal arts college, uh, the great Gen X writer and thinker David Foster Wallace, who himself is not a Christian, spoke these words. And I think it is so apropos for what's happening in this text. He said, and he says this, this is like what he wants these students to know before they graduate and go out into the world. And he says this because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And then he says this, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. He says pretty much anything else will eat you alive. Anybody in the house been eaten alive by something you gave too much power to? So he exposes us. He says, look, what, 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 are, what are you putting at the center of your life? What, what, where, where is your temptation to waver from here and there? And like, what is, what is your temptation? And he says, don't you see, when you worship something as God, it ends up taking a power like God in your life, an enslaving, controlling power. And it, it ends up wreaking havoc in your personal life, sometimes in your job, sometimes uh, with children, with siblings, with roommates, with a marriage, with friendships, because you need this thing and these people are getting in the way, or maybe they're the problem because they have taken away what you most need, and, and, and it starts wreaking havoc. It has a power in your life. And here they are cutting themselves in the name of the gods. Now, notice what Elisha does. Now, after he challenges us and exposes us and puts us on notice. Don't you see how dangerous this sort of thing is? You give yourself over to that idol, it will destroy you. All of a sudden, he, he gives us the alternative. And look what he says. Elisha said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Now, I missed this one verse, you know, for many, many years in studying this because I, missed, I moved quickly right to the action of the fire from heaven. But notice, before he sends fire from heaven, he repairs the altar. What is that about? The altar is the place of worship. It was where they would render their worship to God, the true and living God, as God. And that thing had gone in disrepair. And I just wonder for so many of us, if, if, if that, that altar in our own life, those spaces and places and times where we would spend, spend space and time with God to worship God and to trust God and, and to meditate on God, if we have allowed that to, to go in disrepair. I wonder if some of us have allowed even weekly worship to be in disrepair meaning that you prioritize a lot of things in your life, but for some reason, being together with the people of God is not a priority. And so you're here maybe two days, two times a month, maybe once a month, but it's gone in disrepair. And Elijah says, build up the altar. Choose this day whom you are gonna serve and then act on it. Rebuild that altar. And then after he tells them to rebuild the altar, notice what he does. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And he built up these stones. The stones from whom, to whom the, Lord of the, the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. What does Israel mean? Well, one interpretation of that is governed by God. And it's as if he's saying in this moment, you have not only let the, the altar to go in disrepair, more importantly, you have forgotten who you are. And you have forgotten whose you are. And you have forgotten the name you bear. The God you serve is not Baal. 
And it's not money, and it's not financial security, and, and, and it, it, it's not your job, and it's not your performance, and it's not your image. None of these things are ultimately what you were made for. He says, you were made for the God who chose you, who chose your father Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm gonna build from you and I promise myself to you. You are made for the God who redeemed you, who when you were enslaved in Egypt, he came and he saw your pain and and with a strong hand, he brought you out and parted the sea and he took you to Sinai and he gave you his good way of being in this world, his law, and he gave you his presence. Don't you see who you are? Listen, you will, never, you will never turn from idolatry until you first own and see who you are. You know, you, you are not how good you perform at school, what kind of grades you get, how perfect you can be, how well control you can have over your household or your kids, or how good of a religious performance you can put on. You are not defined by any of those things. You are first and foremost defined by the love of God in Jesus Christ. God has set his affection fully and eternally and unreservedly on you. And he has given you a new name. He has said, you are my beloved son or daughter. You know, I was thinking when I read this text, I don't know why, that little scene from Moana where uh, Moana comes with the green stone. All right, some of you are like, Moana, what are you talking about? Come on. She said, they've stolen the heart from inside of you. But she said, I know your name. This does not define you. Do you know who you are? And it's as if Elijah is saying, look, do you know who you are and whose you are? We are creatures of dust and we were made for God. What are we doing orienting our lives around other creaturely things and creaturely people and creaturely realities? Those are good and beautiful and gifts, but they are not at the center. They are not who you are. They are not whose you are. You and I, we belong ultimately and finally and completely to God. He says, this is your name. And he builds the 12 stones. And then, of course, what happens next? He makes a trench around the altar, as great as could contain two seals of seed. And he put wood in order, and he cut the bowl in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And he said, fill the jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He says, let's make this as difficult as possible. So they pour water all over it. And he says, do it a second time. And then they go pour water over it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And then they did it. A th- he wants to get this thing good and drenched. He wants all of the, the odds stacked against him. Why? So that he can demonstrate before all of the people who the true and living God is. So they did it a third time. They filled the trench also with water and then this. And at the time of offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all of the water that was in the trough around the altar. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. You bet they did. 
And Elijah says, here is the God I am inviting you to orient your life around. Not the God of sex or money or power or any of the idols in our, uh, in our American culture. Orient your life around the God who has renamed you and the God who sends fire. And of course, when the fire fell from heaven that day and the children of Israel saw that, they had no idea that this story would echo down the corridors of human history and that the day would come when God would send not fire from heaven, but the eternal word himself would come from heaven down to earth and would take on flesh and blood and walk among us. And on that day, he would not just consume a sacrifice on an altar. He would lay down his own life in in radical, self-giving love for us on the altar, on the cross, so that in his body, he might bear your sin and your shame and all of the guilt we have for all of the idols that we keep turning away from him towards. And he says, build your life on this. If this be God, if this is God, orient your whole life. You can build your life on the love of God, on the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, and here you will find an absolute, unmovable rock for your soul and for your life so that even when financial hardships come or the parents get a divorce or the kids go off the rails or, or, or you're just feeling like a failure at work, those things will be hard for you, but they will not crush you because your life, your identity, your wholeness doesn't depend on any of that. It is settled. It is settled, eternally settled in God's love in Jesus Christ. And that is very, very good news. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and we confess, O oh God, with John Calvin that our hearts are like little idol factories. We are constantly looking to created things to fill a role in our life that only you, the true and living God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of fire, the God of Jesus Christ can ultimately and finally fill. God, let that news sink into our hearts and lives and may it strengthen and embolden us to choose today afresh that Jesus, you will be God, that we will walk in your way, we will build our identity upon this free gift of grace that you have given to us. Enable us to do that afresh today, now we pray, amen.